Hey everyone, today we're gonna to replay an interview I did with Beto O'Rourke this past July. And just to give you a sense of how long ago that feels like, Texas Democratic representatives were in Washington, D.C. to defend against the Texas voting rights bill, and Speaker Nancy Pelosi had just vetoed allowing Jim Jordan and Jim Banks to serve on the January 6th committee. I want to do this because Beto has just announced his run for governor of Texas against sitting Governor Greg Abbott. I hope you all enjoy the show, and we'll see you next week. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by former United States Congressman for the 16th District of Texas, a candidate for the U.S. Senate in Texas in 2018, and a Democratic primary aspirant in 2020, and founder of the PAC Powered by People, Beto O'Rourke. Beto, thanks for joining me. Reed, it's good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Listen, today I want to talk about what's going on down in Texas. Obviously, you're from El Paso, so you know the place well and how that's impacting voting rights. And I also want to talk a little bit about what we're seeing going on with Speaker Pelosi and the Select Committee on January 6th, and then a little bit more about what Powered by People is doing. I know you've done a ton of voter registration in the last couple of years, but let's start with what's going on in Texas. So just as a little bit of background, you know, I went to high school and college down there. I worked for George W. Bush, you know, 97, 98, worked for Tony Garza, David Dewhurst, people who are all sort of very out of step with the Republican Party of Texas of today. And so, you know, right now there's a special session going on. It's called by Greg Abbott. Obviously, there's the voter suppression piece. There's trans issues. But a lot of this is sort of performative in nature. So I want to ask you two questions. One is, in the conversations you're having with folks down there, do you believe that they're going to be successful in this special session? Secondly, do you believe Abbott when he says that he'll just keep calling these things you know, between now and whenever to try and get this stuff done. And lastly, what kind of evolution have you seen in, in Texas politics since you got your start first in El Paso and then as a member of Congress? So let's start with how you see SB1 in the fight. Obviously, I've talked to a number of the Democratic members of the House. I had Julie Johnson on the podcast earlier this week. So what's going on from your perspective down there? I think you have to begin with the fact that Texas is already the toughest state in the country in which to vote. There was a piece published by the Election Law Journal, which ranks Texas 50th out of 50. And you can chalk that up to more than 750 polling place closures ever since the Supreme Court's Shelby decision in 2013, which is twice the number of polling place closures as any other state. You know, voter ID law that makes it hard for especially young people and very old people who no longer need a driver's license, the poor and disproportionately impacts black and brown Texans and dissuades them from registering and therefore being able to vote. A gerrymander of our political boundaries that a three-judge federal panel described as a racial gerrymander because it specifically targeted black and brown voters to move them out of a district where they might have some voting power into one where they wouldn't. And again, folks coming to the logical conclusion that maybe they shouldn't vote in this next election. That's what's produced the current situation. And on top of that, you mentioned that this is SB1. So it's the priority bill in the Senate for the special session to change the rules and the law around our elections to make it much harder to vote by mail, for example. And this is already a tough state in which to vote by mail, including last year during the pandemic that you know killed more than 50,000 Texans. It would allow free reign to partisan poll watchers inside the polling place. And 
history tells us that those partisan poll watchers will more likely than not be targeting low-income black and brown voters in the state of Texas. And in one manner after another, makes it just a little bit harder on this population and that population and the other to try to continue to entrench Republicans in power, although they may no longer be the majority choice in Texas. We won't know that until all of Texas who's eligible to vote can actually cast a ballot. Seven million last year in the most consequential election in American history, going back to, I guess, 1864, seven million Texans who were eligible to vote did not vote. And there's a reason for it. And it's not for lack of love of democracy. So that's the situation here. And and it helps to understand that context, at least for me, when I think about what would cause a state legislator like Julie Johnson, and I listened to your excellent interview with her, to leave her family, her office in the state capitol, her source of outside income, and to potentially face arrest upon return to Texas. And she represents, you know, a swing district. So this might also come at some political sacrifice for her. Why in the world would she and more than 50 of her colleagues do this? It's for those reasons that democracy is under siege in Texas. And given enough time and without any federal intervention, we might very well lose it in this state. So those are the terms of the battle as I see it at this point. You know, in 2018, in your campaign against Cruz, you were widely and I think rightly credited with bringing a whole bunch of Democrats over the line with you in both state house and state Senate seats and also in U.S. House seats. A lot of those receded back in the context of the 2020 campaign. Do you believe that if all things were equal, you know, say circa 2018, and I know that now feels like eons ago, that we would see that kind of resurgence amongst probably moderate Democrat members or moderate Democrat candidates in these suburban districts? Do you believe that that's the trend in Texas? Because as we've talked about a lot on this show, it all comes down to the margins, right? As you noted, they don't need every Latino Texan not to show up. They just need enough. They don't need every elderly Texan to not mail in a ballot. They just need enough. And so what do you think the electoral outcome could be of this? I mean, I know the simple answer is bad, but how do you see it personally? It's interesting. I was listening to your interview with Representative Johnson, and she said that the Democrats missed taking a majority in the state house by something like 11,500 votes spread across the 12 most competitive districts in the state of Texas. So not only did we hold on to every single seat that we won in 2018, except for one in Houston, then we picked up one. So we netted essentially back to where we were at the end of the 2018 election. So that electorate is there to produce a much more competitive state than conventional wisdom would allow you to believe that exists here in Texas. And let me just be clear, they are making it harder to vote and it will cost the votes of untold number of Texans. Imagine that shift worker who makes $7.25 an hour and works two or three jobs to make ends meet, who in 2020 in Harris County could vote in a 24-hour voting super center That ability to vote after hours is proposed to be struck down by this new elections bill in the state legislature. How many people will no longer vote if they don't have the ability to vote at 2 a.m. or or 4 a.m.? How many will not vote if they can't vote in drive-through voting? Who will be disqualified through a new signature matching requirement that is being imposed in this proposed bill, et cetera, et cetera? We don't know. But here's the optimist in me. 
2017, as you know, Reed, was just a god-awful session in Texas. It was the show-me-your-papers legislation trying to deputize local law enforcement to ask people who look like immigrants and who the hell looks like an immigrant. How do you know in a country of immigrants? And then also, as you know, there was proposed a transgender bathroom bill as though we have some kind of crisis with transgender children in bathrooms in our elementary schools and middle schools versus the very real problems in Texas. Cost Speaker Joe Strauss's job. Absolutely. Talk about a profile and courage in terms of what he was able to do, not only to protect those kids first and foremost, but also to protect the state from the disinvestment that would have followed if that bill had become law. But the political consequence to your question was 2018, where, you know, not only did I get very close to Ted Cruz, but as you alluded to, Democrats elected two new members to Congress, both replacing sitting Republicans, 12 new state house members replacing Republicans, 17 African-American women elected to judicial positions just in Harris County alone, and the single greatest voter turnout in the midterm since 1970. I mean, that has something to do with the parties involved, something to do with the candidates. It has a lot to do with the response and reaction by the electorate to what they see as a very extremist agenda from the governor and the state legislature. And so how does this net out in 2022 if these voter restrictions are passed and signed into law, and yet you still have a supercharged electorate that's really pissed off that instead of fixing the electricity grid, whose failure costs the lives of more than 700 Texans or addressing Medicaid expansion or anything that really matters in the real life of real Texans, that they proposed, you know, transgender sports bills and elections bills that were solutions in search of a problem, et cetera, et cetera. There's going to be a cost and a consequence electorally, politically. I just don't know if their naked grab for power through changing the laws of our elections is going to more than compensate for that and keep them. And as you know, and as you've spoken about before, it's not just happening in Texas. This is what's happening to a political party that can no longer win majorities in this country. And Texas is ground zero for it. Let me ask you this. In 2017, you and another former member of Congress, Will Hurd, did a road trip because you got snowed out. There was a snowstorm in D.C. or something, and you guys had to drive the 1,600 miles from Texas into D.C. You Facebook Live the whole thing, basically. You took calls. You took calls from members of Congress of both parties and were rightly hailed as two guys who got in a car together and, you know, sort of talked through things from different sides of the aisle, but as two people who, obviously, you represented El Paso. He represented West-ish Texas, I guess. I don't think that happens anymore. So at what point did you see that Republicans were sort of abandoning governance as the primary reason to get elected for the performative stuff that we see now every day? This is such a good question. It's one that my wife and I talk about all of the time because we were both raised in Republican households. Our parents are Republicans, or at least former Republicans. In my mom's case, as the saying goes, many of my best friends are Republicans or certainly used to be. You know, as a Democrat in the minority who went to Congress to get something done, I sought out relationships and friendships and working partnerships with Republicans. It's the only way I was going to deliver for the people I represent. I couldn't come home and say, you know, those goddamn Republicans are standing in the way and just elect me one more time. And once I get in the majority, then I'm going to do something for you. No, you expect me to do something for you the minute you send me up to D.C. And so finding the Will Herds of the world, you know, made me much more successful and by extension, my community far more successful than we would have otherwise have been. Does that opportunity exist for 
the woman who succeeded me in this position, Veronica Escobar, who now represents the 16th Congressional District? I don't think so, in large part based on the premise of your question, which is she has to work with a political party that no longer believes in governance, may no longer in certain parts of that party believe in government at all, you know, trying to interrupt and then stop and then overthrow the legitimate, lawful, democratically decided election of 2020. And now the conspiracy theories, the lies, and the big one, trafficked not only by the former president, but by those who are in incredibly important positions of public trust. It becomes really hard, really, really, really hard to get something done with folks who don't even believe in the institutions that you were sworn to uphold and defend. And yet, I do think there is a way out. And I'll give you one quick example. I drove the state over the month of June this year to convene people around the conversation about voting rights and democracy. And we didn't just do it in the places you'd expect a Democrat to be in Houston and Dallas and El Paso. We were in many, many rural counties. We were in Midland. We were in Wichita Falls. We were in Abilene. And I was in Raines County, which is the fourth smallest county by population of the 254 in Texas. Yeah, but it's probably the size of Nebraska or something, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And believe it or not, we convened this meeting at an outdoor park and, you know, more than 125 people show up, including a number of Republicans who came to you know, maybe gently heckle me or try to stump me. Or I'll give you an example. The Republican County chairwoman is there and she says, Hey, Beth, though, you know, I need an ID to get on an airplane. I need an ID to open a checking account. I need an ID to gamble. What do you have against voter ID? And I said, you know what? We may have some common ground here. I I don't know that I have anything against identifying yourself or proving your identity at the polling place. It's just that in Texas, We make it really hard on some people to be able to do that. And before I could go into my litany of those populations who are negatively affected by voter ID laws, this woman who happened to be a neighbor of the Republican County chairwoman raises her hand and she said, here, let me answer that, Beto. I have multiple sclerosis. I have cancers. I cannot drive, so I I don't qualify for a Texas driver's license. I can't get a ride to the issuing agency that could give me the approved form of voter ID. And even if I did, that's $120 out of my pocket, effectively a poll tax. And I watched the Republican County chairwoman's eyes open and her empathy engage. And as the woman with MS finished what she said, I I turned back to the chairwoman. I said, now, can we find a solution here? Could we defray the expense of a state-issued ID for your neighbor here? Or could we expand the number of kinds of identification that would be accepted at a polling place. And she was nodding her head, yes. And so a small victory and maybe a meaningless example, and yet it gave me some hope that when you engage face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball, in the same room with neighbors, there's a level of, of kindness and compassion and empathy and a desire to fix things versus shout at one another and drag each other down and just speak of you as though you're the devil. Being engaged in person on the ground in Texas versus, you know, your question, you know, is there any hope for those who are in elected office in DC? That's where I find hope. So if you can't find it in the halls of Congress, find it in the streets, the public parks, the grocery stores of your hometown and engage with people. And I think you'll find we have a lot more in common than we do that separates us. And that was the big lesson I took from my road trip with Will Hurd. So, you know, I think there was a survey or something out of, I don't know, a month or so ago, maybe it's two months ago now that said that, These voters in this survey, I don't know who did it, were saying, you know, voting rights is not on their 
list of things to worry about. That what's all the hullabaloo about this? And the way the story was written was that because of this, perhaps elected leaders should not take it seriously. Voters don't care about it. So therefore, elected leaders, activists, yeah, you know, find something else to worry about. I take it as the exact opposite, which is if voters aren't worried about it, it's the job of leaders to make them worry about it, to inform them, right? Absolutely. You wonder how in the hell did this country in 1965 pass the Voting Rights Act? How was it in the interest of the white majority and certainly the white political majority to extend functional suffrage to their fellow citizens who happened to be black? You know, President Johnson famously predicted that he would lose the South. The Democratic Party would lose the South for a generation. They lost the South for many generations because of that. So why take the political hit? Why sacrifice in that way? It's because our empathy as a nation, our conscience was engaged. And it took someone like John Lewis. And we just on Saturday marked the one year anniversary of his death. It took John Lewis at the age of 24, crossing the Edmund Pettus Bridge in front of the television cameras and the reporters and really the rest of the country to push America and therefore their representatives and therefore their president to take action. It wasn't but eight days later on the 15th of March that Johnson convenes that joint session and begins his speech advocating for the Voting Rights Act of 65 by pointing everyone's attention to Selma, what had just happened there not eight days before. And so I think that's something beautiful about America, and maybe it's human nature, but I love to think it's what helps to make us so exceptional is that we are an incredibly kind nation who understands that so much of our genius is in our democracy and that of all these voices and experiences and people from across these 50 states in our territories comes one of the best things on planet Earth. With all of our imperfections and all the work that we have to do, that's our genius and we're about to lose it. You know, more than 55 years after that extraordinary achievement, you know, led by our fellow Texan LBJ, that multiracial democracy that he and John Lewis and so many others helped to build is now being dismantled one state legislature at a time. And as you have pointed out, and the Lincoln Project has drawn our focus towards, it's also under a rolling violent attack. That insurrection attempt on the 6th was not the end of things. I think it might very well have been the beginning of things. And so at this moment of truth, what will we do? Just as at that moment of truth in 65, those in positions of power had to ask themselves the same questions. That's where I think we are right now. Let me, again, take it out of the leaders and back into the individual Texans or Americans, which is John Lewis crossed the bridge, as did so many of his colleagues. And so many people during the civil rights gave their lives, you know, had dogs sicked on them, you know, saw families and friends murdered. We're not asking people to do a lot, I feel like, comparatively. Right. We're not asking people to cross that bridge and have Bull Connor sick the dogs on them. We're asking them to stand up, just get off the couch for a minute. We're asking them to participate. We're asking them to get that one more person, you know. So how do we convince folks of all political persuasions, of all ages, of all races and creeds that what you can do can be transformative and it doesn't take a lot of time or work. Now, if you want to be one of those people who wants to serve as a county chair, as a volunteer leader, as the person who's going to lead a brigade out to knock on doors, you can do that. But how do we convince those individuals who will make the difference next November, you know, how important this is? How do we connect the importance of democracy to the individual who's going to help us save it? 
I love the way that you framed it. Look, we're not asking you to get beaten within an inch of your life as John Lewis did or arrested for riding Greyhound buses through the South as John Lewis also did. We're not asking you to storm the beaches of Normandy as Americans from all over this country did 77 years ago, fighting fascism abroad to defend democracy at home. We're not asking you to give your life as Medgar Evers did 58 years ago in Jackson, Mississippi, just for registering voters. And the way I look at it, we inherited all of that sacrifice. It all flows through and down to us. And what we do with it, whether we improve upon it or squander it, defines this generation and frankly, this country forever. And I think within that context, asking you to become, for example, in Texas, a volunteer deputy registrar where you can go door to door and help register your neighbors as I've done here in the Sunset Heights neighborhood in El Paso and are powered by people volunteers are doing it all over the state or attend a voting rights rally or pick up the phone and call President Biden just as people were picking up the phone in 65 and calling President Johnson and remind the president that he has extraordinary power to bring this country together around this issue to do exactly what you just asked, you know, what we want of our leaders, even if this isn't something that you think about on a day-to-day basis, even if you personally have not faced voter suppression or voter intimidation, the president can remind us of what is at stake and then what our role is in bringing voting rights to pass. And so there are so many ways for people to get involved. And what I have found, and this is the good news, is that people want to be involved. They don't want to just retweet the snappy thing that you put out. They don't want to just give you five bucks or sign this petition now or, you know, the sky's going to fall. They want to get out there and they want to do something. And harnessing that energy and directing it to where it's going to be most effective is, I guess, the job of all of us who are involved in this fight. So whether it's Stacey Abrams, you know, hot call summer where she's wanting us to each call our U.S. senators, or whether it's what Bishop William Barber is going to do in Texas next week, which is to lead a a moral march from Georgetown, Texas to Austin to bring greater attention, focus, and urgency to this issue, or whether it's in your own way, organizing in your hometown or your neighborhood, or just talking to your neighbors or your folks about it. So many things that you can do right now. And literally, democracy hangs in the balance. So you got to get out there and do it. So I don't know if you've read about this, but I mentioned this on the program before. The Kansas legislature passed a bill, I think in this year's session, that basically said impersonating an elections official is a criminal offense. All right. In and of itself, I guess. Okay. The chilling effect it had in reality, though, was that the League of Women Voters and a bunch of other voter registration organizations shut down their operations while they're suing the state for, you know, saying this is illegal. And that, to me, is a couple of things. One, I'll be candid, it's a little bit disappointing that folks just in the face of something said, now we're just going to fold up tents. But two, I think stuff like that, I don't even call it civil disobedience. In fact, in my office back here, Beto, I got a bunch of shirts I had made that said, not an elections official. And I'm going to go to Kansas sometime in the next few weeks, and I'm going to go register voters with a shirt that says not an elections official on. So again, we're not asking people to get the dog sicked on them, but how do we take John Lewis's legacy and say, let's go cause some good trouble where we can? How do we show members of the Kansas legislature and by extension, a bunch of other Republicans who probably see that and say, oh, wait a second, now maybe we have something that we're not going to just sit by and put up with it? That's why this stuff is so pernicious, because as you pointed out on its face, It doesn't seem all that bad. And you might even agree with it. It might make some common sense. I don't want anybody impersonating an elections official. Just like in Texas, the reason given for this new elections bill is we just want to standardize elections. Well, shit, who could be against standardizing elections? Let's standardize those things. 
But what you find in the details is the devil that, you know, dissuades in the case of Kansas, voter registration organizations from going out and adding new people to the rolls so that they can have a an impact on the 2022 election, or in Texas, really confusing and confounding enough voters who say, you know what, I've just been trying to follow this debate while raising my kids and working my job and doing other things that are important in my life. I don't know what the hell the rules are in Texas anymore, but I keep hearing about people waiting six hours in line and then this guy got arrested and he might spend life in prison and I give up. I'm not going to vote. It is not worth it. This is a joke. That's obviously the intention behind it. And to some degree, even though this elections bill has not passed in Texas, it's done much of the work already by sowing enough confusion out there and also some fear, some legitimate fear. You know, Crystal Mason sentenced to five years in prison for voting a provisional ballot when she was on probation and didn't know that she couldn't vote. Mr. Johnson in Houston, who was just arrested after waiting six hours in line and may face up to life in prison because he violated some term of his parole by trying to vote. So what we've seen in Texas is that our attorney general, who has a so-called election integrity unit, 72% of their prosecutions have been against black and brown voters in Texas. And so this is really pernicious. It's really evil. It's very undemocratic with a small d. But to your question, so what the hell do we do in the face of this? I guarantee you, if the League of Women Voters had to drop out for a minute in Kansas, there's going to be some other grassroots group and some young woman, some young man, could be an old woman or old man for that matter, who into the breach say, you know what, I'm going to pick this up and I'm going to do it. And maybe in the process, you know, build some local capacity to get that done. But that's really what this moment calls for. There are no sidelines at all in this contest. And certainly there shouldn't be in a democracy. This is government of, by, and for the people. And that means you and that means me this one's on us. It's not on Speaker Pelosi or President Biden or Mitch McConnell or anybody else. It's on you and it's on me. And so I think we all have to look to ourselves as to what we're willing to commit. And you, again, beautifully provided the context, you know, my sacrifice, my service, my struggle will be nothing in comparison to what has preceded mine. And so let's get after it and do our best. One thing that we saw in 2018 in your race Unfortunately, you didn't take out Cruz because I've known that guy for many years and nobody deserved it more than him. But also in 2020 was grand coalitions came together. They came together for different reasons. 2018, probably more of a check on the craziness that we all knew we were going to get with Trump. 2020, probably, you know, because of Trump and COVID. Last year, unfortunately, did not have a down ballot effect, but it did take Trump out of the White House. How do you explain to your supporters that? We're going to have to work with a whole bunch of people we never thought we were going to have to work with. There are these guys, right? They all worked in Republican politics for a long, long time. But you know what? They're on the right side of history. How do you convince Democrats that as much as they might dislike Liz Cheney personally, politically, maybe they have significant disagreements with her father, that in this moment, in the pro-democracy versus authoritarian moment, Cheney's an ally. How do we convince folks we're going to have to put aside some of our past differences, some of our past fights that were probably very nasty um, to say in this moment, we're going to have to lock arms and march forward together. You know, if you accept the premise that there's nothing more important than our democracy and the principle of one person, one vote, and the idea that we can freely choose those who will represent our interests through free and fair elections and help guide the course of our community, our state or our country 
And then everything else flows from that. So if you care about racial justice or confronting climate change before it's too late or making sure that no one working minimum wage has to work two or three jobs to make ends meet and understand that making change in those is only possible when our democracy works and everyone who's eligible literally can cast that ballot and have their voice heard, then Liz Cheney is an ally and we embrace her because she has called out the insurrection attempt and those who were behind it, including those with whom she works right now, who are in positions of power over her in terms of her leadership position within their conference and is willing to sacrifice politically for our common ability to preserve this democracy. You know, I served with Liz Cheney when we were both in Congress and we were in fact both on the Armed Services Committee. I respect her. We have wildly different views on so many of the things that were before us when we were in Congress. And yet I deeply respect her for what she's done. And I want to make sure that she is respected by the country, regardless of the other issues that we disagree on, because her defense of democracy, and if we're successful in protecting it and expanding it to every eligible voter, means, at least in, in my mind, that we're far more likely to succeed on the issues that we care about, because we're going to bring in those voters of 7 million in Texas who've been effectively left behind in election after election. And as Julie said on your show earlier this week, you know, have proven that we're not so much a red state as we are a non-voting state. Once we are a voting state, look out America. And it doesn't mean look out America, you know, here comes some giant liberal progressive revolution. It just means in the competition for ideas and vision and track record and candidates and campaigns, you're going to produce a much better result than you've had so far. The same would be true in any state dominated you know, unilaterally by Democrats. So if you believe in democracy, this is what we want. And she's been a champion of that because of the way that she responded to the insurrection attempt on the 6th of January. Well, and there's all these books that are coming out now about the transition period after Trump lost. And on the 6th, Jim Jordan grabbed Liz Cheney's arm and says, we have to get the ladies out of the aisle. And she's like, get away from me. You, you effing caused this, right? Like I worked for Dick Cheney in 2000. My dad worked on the Hill when he was, you know, a minority leader, a minority whip, whatever it was like the Cheneys are a steely people, if nothing else. And she even agreed with Speaker Pelosi's decision to remove two of the Republicans McCarthy had appointed to the select committee that's going to meet for the first time next week because she said they're seditionists. You can't have the robber prosecuting his own crime or investigating his own crime. And so I think she's committed to it. Right. And she's from Wyoming. Right. Wyoming is as red a state as it gets. You know, maybe Jackson Hole is a transient blue, you know, dot in the middle of the chili, but it's really not a competitive state. Let me ask you this just quickly on, on what we're going to see next week. Do you believe that there will be more Republican members of Congress as this committee does its work who will join Cheney and join Kinzinger as we hear more and we see more about what happened on that day? That are going to stand up? Or do you believe that 10 Republicans voting for impeachment was the high watermark and we got two left and that's just what we're going to get? My fear is that you're right. That might have been the high watermark. And Elise Stefanik, for example, another person with whom I served, who was frankly far more moderate member when I was there. I don't know that she ever comes back from her full embrace of Trump and the lies told by the former president. That's just who she is now. And I, I don't know that she can change spots one more time. And that may be the corner that a lot of these 
Republican members have painted themselves into? How did they come out of that? Now, and the Lincoln and all of us, the President Lincoln and all of us, with charity for all and malice towards none, wants to offer the hand and say, you know what? Let me give you a chance to do right by your constituents and by your country and disavow what you said before and get on the right side of history. And, and I think that's the right impulse. But I think by that same token, if you're unwilling to support democracy in what is purported to be the world's greatest, then there's got to be a consequence for it. I, I believe after the 1866 midterm election, you know, some of the readmitted states of the former Confederacy tried to send former Confederate generals and colonels to serve as U.S. senators, and they were barred at the door. Hell no, you cannot come in here. You're a traitor. Go back to your state. After trying to destroy democracy and the union, you don't get to waltz in here and pretend that you now want to participate in it. By that token, I'm so grateful for Speaker Pelosi and her decision to bar those who helped to inspire the insurrection attempt on the 6th from serving on the committee that was going to investigate it. That's the right way to do it. Right. And of course, Kevin McCarthy, minority leader in the House, is now saying, well, they're going to do their own investigation, which of course, you know, will be. God knows what. But my guess is it's not going to be particularly pro Capitol Police. It's probably not going to be pro Mike Pence. It's probably not going to be pro much of anything because the Republicans aren't. Listen, before we let you get out of here, tell us about what Powered by People is doing. I know that when we talked during you know the early election year last year that you all were doing incredible work registering these you know millions of people who have moved into Texas from all over the country who you knew were Democrats, wherever it is they'd come from, but hadn't registered yet. What else is it you guys are working on? We're very engaged in this fight for voting rights in Texas. To that end, Powered by People, through you know, an average donation of 36 bucks, has raised more than $650,000 to support the state legislators who are now in Washington, D.C. There's more than 50 of them, and we want to make sure that they do not want for resources while they continue that fight in the U.S. Capitol, the one place where we can, frankly, win this fight and get the For the People Act passed by the Senate. We're hosting and holding and convening rallies and conversations and roundtables around voting rights and democracy to listen to the people most affected and impacted by these voter suppression and voter intimidation laws to answer the question that you posed earlier. How do we get what's happening to those who are not affected by it? Well, we go out and we find the stories from those who are affected and share them with those who are not and engage their conscience in the contest and make sure that, you know, that they're fully engaged. And then we're, we're registering voters, but we're doing it a little bit differently this year, in large part because from a public health standpoint, we can. We're doing these voter registrations in person. And Texas, as you know, has a peculiar law that requires you to become a volunteer deputy registrar in order to register people to vote. You cannot register to vote online in the state of Texas. You can go down to your elections office at the county courthouse in your county seat. You can, if you have a printer, print out a form. You have to get a separate certification in each of the counties. And there's 254 of them in Texas that you want to work in. So luckily, we've got a, an organization about 20,000 people strong in Texas with members in every one of those counties. We're asking them all to become BDRs. 
and then literally go door to door in their neighborhoods and meet their neighbors and register them to vote, but stay engaged with them in conversation now in 2021, instead of just showing up, you know, a week before early voting starts in 2022 and saying, hey, Reed, uh, I want to make sure you know where your early voting location is and vote for this candidate. See you later. That that stuff doesn't work and shouldn't work and is disrespectful to the voter. I think engaging now and doing it in person is critical both to saving democracy, getting more voters on the rolls, and then winning elections in 2022 and beyond. No, I think that's absolutely right. In fact, Joe Trippi, recent addition to the Lincoln Project team, and I were talking to a group of people earlier today, and and that was one of the questions we got as well. You know, I'm hearing that a lot of people are just going to save, you know, all their resources and their time and their energy until, you know, September of 2022. And we're like, don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> At that point, it's too late. Can't wait that long. So where can we find your group and where can we find you online? So go to Powered X people.org so powered the letter x people.org and you can find out more about what we're doing you can also help support those brave texas legislators who are in dc right now stopping suppression in texas and trying to advance voting rights in our nation's capital and then if you're in texas you can also sign up for a training to become a volunteer deputy registrar and get engaged in this fight now and as you just suggested not waiting until the fall of 2022 and then on most social media, I'm Beto O'Rourke. So just B-E-T-O and then O-R-O-U-R-K-E on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and really just doing everything I can to shed light on this voting fight in Texas and then trying to push the president and our friends in the Senate to have the political courage right now to move on the For the People Act. That's what we need to save American democracy. And gang, as always, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. Beto O'Rourke, thanks for joining me. I hope you'll come back soon. I hope we can finally meet in person after all these months. Look forward to seeing you. Look forward to seeing what you and all your folks are doing. But once again, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on. Good to be with you. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.